0: One of the things that Wes has done that is so uh, great is encourage us over and over to get in the Word and encourage us to try to read things in context and to try to, you know, not just read snippets, but when possible to read uh, longer sections of Scripture. And tonight we have the blessing of the fact that uh, Obadiah is indeed the shortest uh, book in the Bible. And so we're going to take advantage of that tonight uh, and use that as a blessing and try to read uh, the entire text before we go back and, uh, and add some historical context and then dive in uh, to some specific verses. And so if you have your Bibles, open up uh, to the book of Obadiah, and we're going to read that uh, together, starting there in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares. The Lord, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they want it? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, all his treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set up a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? You warriors, O Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one... Of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau will be stubble. And they will set it on fire and consume it, and there will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray together before we dive in further. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this Uh, book that we get to look at tonight. We thank you for um, the time that we get to be together with our brothers and sisters, and we ask that we have uh, open hearts to your word, uh, that we uh, desire to be people who are are open to learn. It's your name we pray. Amen. So if we were to, you know, talk about Obadiah, and if we were to jump in uh, to the text a little bit, if you'll go to that first slide, um, we'll see that the word Obadiah Uh, is used quite a bit in Scripture. You know, it's a proper name. Uh, It's used 12 times uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, But the name itself means servant of the Lord. And so, you know, there's been some difficulty in trying to, you know, determine which references to Obadiah are are references to the prophet who who penned this work and which, you know, references are there solely to refer to someone uh, who is a servant of the Lord... Uh, But we know that he wrote during the time uh, after the destruction of Judah in 586 B.C., uh, during the siege uh, from Babylon, the destruction of the temple. Uh, And we know that this is the core message, uh, the context for the core message of the book of Obadiah centers around this event, and particularly the role of the Edomites uh, in this particular event. And so... You know what we read was you know pretty dark. It was uh, it was kind of tough to read. You know the word disaster you know kind of sets the rhythm for the middle portion of uh, that particular prophecy and. You know, disaster is is what the people have experienced. It's what the people have uh, felt, and they're still trying to grapple with all the implications of their experience of being taken over by the Babylonians. Uh, and they're, you know, they're trying to rebuild uh, as a nation. Kind of during the time uh, that this particular oracle uh, was given. And so, if we're going to go back and and really understand this book, you know, we have this. This limited context here that's kind of the, you know, micro context, if you will, right around uh, the particular passage. Uh, But we also have this big macro context. And if you will go to the next slide, um, I'll be honest, I I kind of have missed the significance of the Edomites. You know, when I kind of read, uh, you know, that word in scripture, I would be maybe quick to gloss over it like we do some of the other uh, names of different people groups and different things. Uh, but but the more I, I got to studying this this group of people is is very fundamental to the entire story of of the Old Testament because the people of Edom you know are the people of Esau and we see this this tension filled family relationship uh, you know become one uh, of national interest and and that happened. Uh, right at the beginning. And I would love to read through uh, all of these passages together tonight, but we're just going to look at some highlights from these. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis uh, chapter 25. And this is a fairly uh, familiar story probably to most of of us, uh, but I'd like for us to try to read it kind of with fresh eyes in the sense that uh, the story of Jacob and Esau is a really messed up story. Um, it's, it's, It's not pleasant to read. Um, You know, maybe put yourself in the shoes of Esau, uh, and even in the shoes of Jacob, um, you know, to do the things that he did. You know, Jacob was a pretty troubled person, a person who, you know, in a lot of ways behaved in similar manners to uh, what the Edomites did in the uh, particular prophecy that we just read about, Uh, and we'll look at that in just a second. But starting in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 25, it says Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. And the babies jostled within each other, within her, and said, "Why is this happening to me?" And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, "Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger." Can you imagine getting that message, right? Uh, Can you imagine, you know, being today, going for a sonogram and going, hey, things don't really feel uh, right, you know, hey, you know, can you look at this? And and to get that message, right? Uh, First, you're probably thinking, I don't have enough money to support two nations, right? I know that's what I would be thinking. Um, But your mind might move next to, to what they say. I mean, how hard would it be to parent two twins in which you've already been given this message? right? That you've already been given the message that the stronger, uh, that one will be stronger than the other and that the older will serve the younger, right? Wouldn't that frame like every interaction you had with them as a parent? And we see that it does, right? We see this conflict between their parents and that conflict manifests itself in this pretty nasty lie, right? Uh, this nasty lie that, that God does redeem and that God uses, uh, you know, to create his people of Israel, that you know, he, he goes along with and the entire Old Testament, you know, tells us about. Um, but it's a struggle for, uh, for his parents to know what to do with with this particular passage. And so, you know, not long from there, we see uh, this come to fruition. Uh, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first that came out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau. And, and this is where the word Edom you know, derives, Edom means red. Um, And so, you know, when we see it, we know that, you know, in a similar way that, uh, you know, eventually we have this name given to Jacob for Israel, Uh, we're going to get this name for Esau as well, the name uh, Edom. And after this, his brother's heel came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, and Isaac was six years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. And the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Esau was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished, and he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished, and this is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. And this is another one of these situations that, you know, had to set the tone for the rest of their relationship right? Um, You know, in the midst of what was obviously a poor decision for Esau, you know, we could spend time talking about the fact that, you know, he might not have appreciated what he gave up in the moment. He might have traded something of great significance uh, for something of you know, immediate, what was perceived need, right? This instant gratification, maybe. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, this was not a fair thing for for Jacob to do. This was not a, you know, a brotherly thing for Jacob to do. Uh, He kind of takes advantage uh, of Esau. And then if we were to continue to read, we would see, you know, these episodes in which, you know, Jacob, you know, continues to take advantage uh, of Esau. And finally there in 27, when it comes down uh, to the giving of the blessings in chapter 27, uh, starting in verse 27, uh, it says, So he went and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, and this is the blessing uh, given to Jacob. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you riches of heaven's dew and of earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine." May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down before you. May those who curse you be cursed. And those who bless you be blessed. Right? Jacob receives this incredible blessing. Um, You know, this blessing that, you know, really sets him up uh, for success. Uh, And then we see this really traumatic event between a father and a son. In fact, you know, we know that he loved Esau. We know that Isaac, you know, this probably really hurt him. But listen to these words and just how, you know, they should make you feel for Esau. They should make you feel kind of bad uh, for what has happened. After Isaac finished blessing him, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence when his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too had prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And then he said to him, my father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And his father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it before me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and he said to his father, bless me too, father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing." Esau said, "'Isn't he rightfully named Jacob? "'He has deceived me these two times. "'He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing.' "'And then he asked, "'Haven't you reserved any blessing for me?' "'And Isaac answered Esau, "'I have made him lord over you "'and have made all his relatives his servants, "'and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. "'So what can I possibly do for you, my son?' "'And Esau said to his father, "'Do you only have one blessing?' Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept aloud. And his father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And I know that's a lot of reading to, to, to kind of start tonight. And I appreciate uh, you know, each of you for, for following along. Um, But that's really what, you know, kind of Obadiah uh, is all about, is this continued struggle between these nations that come from these brothers. And if we were to keep going, you know, we can see that there's uh, this moment of reconciliation in in Genesis 32 and 33, uh, and right in the middle of that, you know, it's a very tense time. Jacob doesn't know uh, exactly what's going to happen. We have this scene of him wrestling with God, uh, and he's given the name Israel, uh, the one who wrestles uh, with God and, and they do reconcile uh, and things for the moment you know seem like uh, they're you know becoming better between uh, the two brothers but we would see that you know what was predicted uh, the conflict between the two of them would would continue uh, when Israel is going to the promised land numbers 20 tells us that Edom doesn't let them come through their land and they keep petitioning the Edomites, hey, please, can we come through? We won't mess with your stuff. Uh, you know, you won't even notice that we're here. Uh, just let us pass. Uh, and in fact, they refuse and they bring the army uh, to make sure that Israel can't cross on the quickest way uh, to the promised land. Then they're an enemy of King Saul. Uh, King David kills 18,000 Edomites and he brings them back under the rule uh, and reign of his kingship. Uh, And then because of some of Solomon's choices, we see this person named Hadad the Edomite who's raised up as Solomon's adversary. Uh, And he's the one who continues to battle uh, with Solomon towards the end of his time uh, as king. And so we see over and over and over, you know, the implications of these two brothers uh, is ongoing. And so let's go ahead and look at our text a little bit further tonight. If you'll skip two slides, please. So let's look at verse 1. With each of the prophets that we've been looking at, um, you know, one of the things that they try to make clear to the people, and I'm sure it's clear more than just by what they're saying verbally, um, but they want to emphasize the fact that this is not them speaking, right? They are delivering a word from the Lord. And Obadiah, you know, he cuts right to it. In the first verse, he says, The sovereign Lord says, We have heard a message from the Lord, right? He's making sure the people know that this is God who is delivering uh, this particular message. And so let's keep going. In verse 3, we get to see a picture of who uh, the Edomites have become. They are the dwellers in the rocks, right? It told us, you know, in the blessing that they wouldn't get to benefit the rich, from the richness of the earth, right? They wouldn't get to benefit from the type of land that was given to Jacob. Uh, if you were to Google, you know, where the land of Edom is... You know, you would see all these pictures of, you know, just kind of what looks like red dirt, right? Uh, It doesn't look like, you know, you don't see anything growing. It doesn't look like it would have been an easy place for a group of people uh, to live. Uh, And what's really interesting, as I was, you know, on the old Google machine, you can get down a rabbit hole. um, But if you've seen the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, kind of that last, you know, temple that they enter in um, that's built into the rock there. Um, you know, is predicted to be in what became the land of the Edomites, right? And so, you know, that's the area of Petra, one of the New Seven Wonders of the World. Those red rocks uh, could have been in the extended territory of of what is uh, the Edomites, and so they lived in these rocks. They made their home on the heights, and they were really proud of this, right? Um, they may not have had the best things; they may not have had. Uh, The same blessing that that Jacob received. But they thought they had made uh, kind of a land for themselves that they were proud of. And they were so proud of it that their pride is what is first condemned uh, here in this prophecy. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and made your home in the heights. You who say to us, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Right, they think that their fortress, that their particular location, is going to keep them from experiencing the punishment uh, that God is going to provide to them. But the Lord tells them, you know, there's no place uh, that you can hide from me. And so there in five, if thieves came to you and if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you! Would they not steal as much as you wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? When I was reading this, I was like that. That seems kind of like a weird thing to throw in, right? Uh, it's talking about thieves and stealing, and then it's like, hey, you know, wouldn't they at least leave you a few grapes? Uh, and in Jeremiah, when they, when they tell us about when the town of Jerusalem was overtaken, if you go to the next slide, uh, it tells us that even Nebuchadnezzar and his, you know, Babylonian empire, you know, after they had done these terrible things to the people, it tells us that they left the poorest among them, kind of untouched. And it says, they left them behind in the land of Judah, some of the poor people who owed nothing. And at that time he gave them vineyards and fields, right? You know, so even Babylon who had done these terrible things to Judah, you know, took the time to give them vineyards and fields, right? And the Lord is saying in this prophecy uh, to the Edomites, you guys aren't even going to be left a few grapes, right? Even what Babylon did to Judah, what happens to you is going to be way worse. But how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures, pillaged, right? The people would know what this was a reference to. We know that the Edomites experienced this uh, Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And so in verse 7, we see the word allies. And this word literally means men of the covenant, right? He's saying people that you've entered into a covenant with, they're going to leave you, right? Things are going to be so bad that even the people you trusted aren't going to stick around. They're going to give you up, and they're going to leave you to your destruction. And so in verse 8, we see something else that the Edomites are proud of. They're proud of their fortress. They're proud of this kind of rock city that they've built. Uh, But they're also people who seem to have built kind of a wisdom culture. Right, they're known for being wise men. Um, you know, they're known for being those of understanding. And so, if we look back and kind of explore that a little bit more, uh, if you go to the next slide, the land of Uz, uh, where Job was from, uh, is right in the territory of Edom. And so, you know, Job we know to be, you know, not only a wise man, but his friends who were from all these other places that you know, we were around the surrounding area of Edom, you know, they had taken upon themselves to become sages, right? And the book of Job is these interchanges of these sagely, you know, exchanges of wisdom in which they're trying to explain, you know, the way things happened in the world, why things happened to Job the way that they did. And so many people believe that Edom, you know, had, you know, not only taken pride in, you know, their own architecture and different things, but they'd taken pride in the fact that they're a wise people. But God tells them, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? And so the two things they're most prideful about uh, are going to go away. If you'll go two slides. Um, And so this is going to be the core of of what we're going to be talking about tonight is this idea of kind of progressive falling into deeper and deeper, you know, sin. Um, and, and we've all probably experienced this uh, in our own lives, maybe. Maybe we've, you know, started out with something and, and you know, it, it affected us a little bit. And, uh, but, you know, we, we just kept it around. And, and then after a while, you know, it didn't seem uh, like that big a deal until we took one step further Uh, We did this other thing, and then we took one step further. And and what started out in our minds is what was a little thing uh, is no longer a little thing. Uh, And that's what we see here uh, with the Edomites in relation to Judah, describing how they interacted during the siege. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, and you cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. And so the first thing they're criticized for is just being bystanders. They're people who said, you know, we're just going to let this happen, right? We're just going to let this happen. Uh, but God is saying, hey, letting this happen is just as bad as being a part of the people who sieged Jerusalem. You were like one of them. Oh, but it gets worse. Verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble so at first they're just going to let it happen at first they're just going to say hey you know we're not a part of this but hey we're not jumping in but then it grows right they start making fun of their brother right they start standing and watching in a way that that now you know they're enjoying this and we may say you know that's terrible but i can't tell you how many times you know and you know this is not meaning to trivialize this terrible thing that's happening but how many times on a smaller scale I've sat there and, and watched somebody make fun of somebody and at first been like okay you know at least it's not me making fun of them right uh, and then oh wait that guy's pretty funny right uh, this is pretty funny watching what's happening and, and then before too long you know I'm laughing along and, and and then all of a sudden you know maybe it compels me to uh, to begin making fun uh, of that person as well and, and look at what happens verse 13 you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster nor gloat over them in the calamity in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster and so look hey you know hey we we went from no not us now we're making fun of you oh now we're in the gates oh now we're taking their stuff right you know it keeps building oh wait we're not done and you should not wait at the crossroads and this is where it just gets troubling to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. These are the people running away. These are the people running away from this terrible destruction. And what do they do? They turn them in, right? You know, to me, like this is almost worse than being the original oppressor, right? This is someone who is seeking refuge and and you point them out. Right. This is someone who thinks they've maybe gotten away, and you bring them right back. And even worse, you know, yeah, there's been some conflict between the people of Israel and the people of Edom. But don't you think maybe they ran that direction on purpose? You know, don't you think at the end of the day they thought, hey, you know, these are Esau's people, right? In the midst of maybe the most terrible thing that's ever happened to us, you know, maybe this is where we should run. Their family at the end of the day, right? And they behave in such a despicable way that they turn the people back over to the Babylonians. And so we see this progressive building of sin of the people of Edom. And you know, it must have, you know, it must have happened, you know, not immediately, right? It sounds like, you know, there's some time in between each one of these things. You know, and, and that's kind of how it happens for us too. You know, we don't immediately go from, you know, telling a white lie to being you know, caught up in a web of lies, right? It takes time. And we desensitize ourselves to the terrible things uh, that we're doing. And so in verse 15 is a major shift in the story uh, and a major shift in the prophecy. It shifts from talking about one nation uh, to talking about all nations. And so it says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done it will be done to you, your deeds will return upon your own head just as you drank On my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink as if they had never been. And so there's this shift for the people who are listening, right? You know, the people of Judah are listening to Obadiah, and, you know, hopefully, you know, that they're listening with a critical ear, right? Hopefully, they're learning from what Obadiah is saying to the people of Edom. Hopefully, there aren't any cheers, right? Um, You know, hopefully, they heard it's not good to boast in the destruction uh, of, you know, your brother's people, right? Hopefully, the audience is responding in the way that the prophecy was meant to be heard. Um, but they're listening up now, right? They're talking about all nations that surround uh, the people of Israel are going to come, you know, to this type of uh, destruction. But, in verse 17, but on Mount Zion there will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess His inheritance, right? There's a shift. We've talked about all these negative things that are going to happen. We've talked about all the nations facing destruction. But at the end of the day, deliverance is still there. And it's not in the mountains of the mountain dwellers. It's not in the ones who survived this one particular instance It's in the true mountain, right? It's in Mount Zion that there will be deliverance. In verse 21, deliverers will go down upon Mount Zion and govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Not the kingdom will be Judah's, not the kingdom will be Israel's, but the kingdom will be the Lord's, right? This is, you know, a prophecy about a coming kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, right? This is a prophecy about the one who truly provides the things that all people need. So we're going to end on this thought, if you will, go to the last slide. I know we've covered a lot of stuff, uh, but here are the three points I want us to get out of tonight. Uh, No matter how strong you think your fortress is, it's not strong enough if it's not aligned with God, right? And that can be your wealth, you know, that can be, you know, your, you know, your feeling of achievement or accomplishment or whatever you've built up to create this kind of isolation from, you know, the troubles of this world. No matter how strong you think that is, uh, it's not enough. You know, no matter if you're considered this wisdom people, these really, really smart people, no matter how smart you think you are, it's not enough. And no matter how much you think you've escaped punishment, right, that whole first part, they've taken pride in the fact that they had a plan B, right? They're going to do all these things to the people of Judah, but at the end of the day, they've got a hiding place, right? They're going to run off in the hills and they're going to be safe. And sometimes we think that, right? You know, no matter how big our 401k is or no matter how big, you know, all these different things are that are going to provide, you know, a way out for us, no matter how big it is, there is punishment uh, that is coming. And in verse 3 of Obadiah, it says the phrase, cleft of the rock, right? And, and like many of you, when we probably read that, something came uh, to your mind, and that's the song, A Wonderful Savior, right? Uh, a Wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. Uh, and I've asked Eric to close us with that song. So as you think back to Obadiah, and you know, it may be a while before we, you read it again, I mean, let's be honest, um, I mean, it's not a book that we read and talk about a lot, um, but every time you do read it, uh, let's think about the fact that Jesus is the one who ultimately can provide fortress, who's ultimately you know, the way to truth, and who's ultimately you know, provides for us the kind of life uh, that we're meant to live.